Yes, well, good morning, church. My name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are in a series called Unwavering, where we are looking at how do we live unwavering, stable, and secure lives in a world that is radically changing. And, and our world's not just radically changing, but it's rapidly changing. It turns out our world is indeed changing quicker than it has ever changed at any point in human history. Because for the vast majority of human history, the world shifted and adjusted and changed at a fairly predictable pace. For, for most of the time, the human experience has been going on. Ideas were formed, stories were told, events occurred, and slowly over time, cultures were shaped. The world shifted and changed predictably. Now, that's not so much the case anymore. The world is changing rapidly. Here's a surprising and totally true story from not that long ago. In 1965, uh, the United States government foresaw a major crisis coming their way. With all of the technological advances, with the developments of things like the telephone and vehicles and, the, and their prevalence in transportation and appliances and all of these technolo technological advances happening, they felt there was a major crisis coming upon them and they needed to form a Senate subcommittee to come up with a strategy and a plan to address this major crisis coming their way. Do you want to know what they thought the major crisis coming their way was? that their society would be too efficient with too much free time. <laughs> they thought our world's going to be too efficient. We're going to have to go down to a 14 to 20 hour work week. That's going to usurp everything. And they started to plan out things for kids and childcare. And, and how will our society last in a world that is so efficient when we all have so much free time? Now, I don't know about you, but that's not the world we live in. That crisis came, but was totally different than they thought it would be. The world is changing, and it's changing quickly. Um, I don't know uh, if any of your parents said this to you. Um, I can remember often when I was in high school or in junior high, my parents looking at me and saying, Kyle, I know what it's like to be in high school. I know what it's like to be you. Well, parents, you can no longer say to your kids, you know what it's like to be them. You can't. I can never say to my kids, I know what it's like to be them. Because when I was their age, cell phones weren't even really a household thing. Social media didn't exist. Internet was like, Remember like dial-up internet? <laughs> the world is different. My parents can no longer say, I know what it's like to parent young kids in this world because the, the world is so different. Parents, you can no longer say to your kids, no matter what age they are, you know what it's like to be them in that stage because the world has radically changed and it's rapidly changing. How do we live stable, unwavering lives in this cultural moment? Anybody feel like it's hard to keep up with all the changes that are going on in the world? 
I don't want to make our brains spin too fast, but I also want us to live sober-minded right now. There's a world-renowned futurist named Ray Kurzweil, and he wrote that the rate of change in society is so fast right now that in the next century alone, we will experience the equivalent of 2,000 years of change. 2,000 years of change in the next century alone. How do we live unwavering lives in a radically changing world? How do we live stable and secure lives? Here's a word of hope for every one of us, though. While the world is rapidly changing, what it means to be human has not changed. While the world is rapidly changing, God has not changed. And while the world is rapidly changing, God's word is still ultimately the authoritative truth that describes the human experience. The world is changing, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And his word is still a firm foundation for us to live our lives on. In fact, I would say one of the most beautiful testimonies of God's word is its capacity to speak into the human experience at every single point in every single culture around the world throughout human history. Firm foundation. And we can learn from God's people in the past how to live into the future. Because our God never changes. He's not like shifting shadows. He's true. And so today we look at Daniel chapter 4. We've been doing this uh, walk through the book of Daniel. We did Daniel 1, 2, and 3, did a two-week detour, um, but we're back into the book of Daniel in chapter 4. And there's a unique switch that happens in Daniel 4. The first three chapters are focused on Daniel and God's people and how they're in exile and how they're living. Daniel chapter 4, the switch happens where it moves from God's people and it starts to look at King Nebuchadnezzar. If you missed some of the first three weeks, I'd encourage you to go back. That'll help today make more sense. Um, But today, Daniel 4, the focus is on King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar at the time was the most prolific pagan on the planet. He was the king of one of the greatest empires the world has ever known. He was the builder of Babylon and all of its opulence. If you know some of the history of Babylon, some of the ancient wonders of the world come from there, right? The Hanging Gardens, King Nebuchadnezzar. The Ramparts of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar was this prolific person, the most influential person on the planet at the time. And today's passage, we see how God got a grip of his heart and changed everything for him. Daniel 4 is his biography. And as a spoiler alert, what Daniel 4 is all about, what we learn from this chapter is that to live an unwavering life in this world, pride needs to be absolutely eradicated from our lives. Pride needs to be plucked out in totality. Daniel 4 is all about pride. 
But preaching on pride is a really weird thing to do. One, because I wrestle with it. It's something that's part of my experience. And two, why it's weird to preach on pride is because the people that need to listen to this the most don't know that they need to listen to this the most. The people that need to listen to this the most are right now thinking, oh man, I hope so-and-so is listening. (laughs) Are they here? People that need to listen to a message on pride are the ones that are least willing to listen to a message on pride. So can I challenge all of us right now by saying for today's message to grab hold of our hearts, we should all assume we are the most prideful person in the room. For, for our time together, for God's word to grab hold of our hearts, can I just challenge you to assume you're the most prideful person in the room? And if you're unwilling to do that, well, you may just be that. <laughs> now, some here may be like, well, you know, pride's not really my thing. You know, I've, I've said at times, you know, I'm more inclined to insecurity than pride. But one of the things I've come to learn, and I say this gently, but pride and insecurity are the same coin and different sides of it. Because both pride and insecurity are unable to take hold of what it means to be human for the good and the bad. So let's just all assume we are the most prideful person in the room and that there may be something in our lives that God wants to get a hold of. Daniel 4 is going to reveal just how passionate God is in pursuing us and plucking pride from our lives. It starts off by saying this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now reading that, King Nebuchadnezzar writing this letter, there's a massive shift that happens that might be really easy to miss. Because it kind of sounds like he's writing a psalm, right? His wonders are amazing. It sounds like he's writing a psalm, but in the very previous chapter, in Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar wrote these words to the nations and people of every language. And then he says, come and bow to the statue I made of myself. Now, one chapter later, to the nations and people of every language, may you prosper and may the Lord bless you. What a change. What a dramatic shift in his life. It should make us ask, like, what happened? What went on in his life? This shift did not happen by seeing the fiery furnace and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That shift did not change. Watching the experience of other people didn't change his heart. He went through something that changed his heart. And that's what he goes on to explain. King Nebuchadnezzar tells us next, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. 
I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. He's called Belteshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. Now, before we get to what the vision and the dream was, I, I, there's, there's several things in that opening that I want us to pay attention to. The first thing is this. King Nebuchadnezzar was at home. He was content and he was prosperous. I said in week one of this series that health and wealth have this capacity to wean us from our dependency on God. Content and prosperity predispose us <clears throat> to wandering from a dependency on God. And because of where we live, in this part of the world, the country, the city, the time in human history, we are all disproportionately at risk to losing our dependency on God. It's a hazard for all of us living here. We need to be aware of that. But more than that, we read it was while King Nebuchadnezzar was in bed. He was in stillness and he was in silence and God broke through and he was terrified. And it reminds us that no amount of contented prosperity can make us immune to the inner longings and God breaking through to our lives. If we get still, if we get silent, what may God want to say to you? What may God want to reveal to you? In my journal, in processing of this passage, I wrote in the margins of, of, of this verse, God breaks through the silence and speaks to our humanity, reminding us all that there is an otherness to life that comfort and prosperity cannot address. There is anotherness to life. And so I picture the scene, Nebuchadnezzar laying in bed in darkness and stillness, having this profound encounter with God. And then I wonder for all of us if we even slow down enough in stillness and silence and darkness to have encounters with God like that. Or how many of us, when we're in bed, we're scrolling or we're watching we don't actually have moments of stillness or silence. Or how many of us live life to the absolute extremes with no margin to actually be still. And so when we do lay down, we just pass right out. Or we don't actually have enough moments to, in our lives to be still and quiet. We don't slow down enough to listen. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. When King Nebuchadnezzar got still, he knew there was a God and that he was not it. 
How many of you know that Psalm? Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God. It's well known. A lot of us are familiar with it. Here's the other side of it. If we are not still, we will not know God. If we don't slow down and get quiet, we will become the victims of our busyness. And it's entirely to our own danger where we miss what God may have for us. Some of us may need to make some costly choices to eradicate some things from our schedule. Oh, but it's fun. Oh, but it's good. Oh, but the kids love it. Be still. It's from this place King Nebuchadnezzar explains the vision that he had, the dream. In his dream, he saw a tree in the middle of the land. It was enormous. It touched to the heavens. It spread out wide. It was visible to the ends of the earth. On it, food for all. Everyone was provided for. Then in the vision, a holy one came. A messenger came and said, cut it down, strip it bare, but leave the stump and bind it in iron. Bind it with bronze. And then the messenger said, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. Then he ends his, his telling of the dream. He says, this is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So the feature of this is a massive tree that a holy one says, chop it down. King Nebuchadnezzar calls for all of his wise people to come and to interpret him, and, 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 and they're like, well, we, we can't do that, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we might miss some of this vision because we're just so far removed from that time in human history in Babylon, but the, a tree was the symbolic link between heaven and earth. And when you read about ancient civilizations, like Pharaoh was likened and called a tree. Egyptian iconography had a goddess as a tree. There was a Babylonian story of Era and Isham that included a tree. Assyrian kings were called trees. Trees were known to be the cosmic tree, tree of life. Tree is commonly associated with the leader of the land. Perhaps like a crown or a throne would be for us. You know, if someone, a leader of a country had a dream of a throne getting cut in half and burnt on fire, and it's like, what do you think this means? Well, it's not good. I don't think that's positive. So when King Nebuchadnezzar asks all his people, hey, can you tell me what this means? And they're like, oh, I don't know what it means. It's hard. I don't know. They didn't want to interpret it. So King Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel, the spirit of the gods is in you. You, you can do this. And Daniel interprets the dream and he says, King, you are the tree. You're going to be driven away. You're going to be crushed until you acknowledge God in your midst. Until you do what's right and repent, you will be driven away. Can you imagine delivering that word to the king? Can you imagine 
having to say those words. It reminds us that sometimes the most powerful thing we can do as followers of God is to speak the truth in love to the people around us. Sometimes faithfulness to God means speaking scary and tough truths to the people and to the powers around us. Is there something you need to say to someone? We see in, 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 in the greatest empire on the planet at the time, only Daniel had the capacity and the courage to speak the truth to the king. Nobody else was able to do that. Nobody else was willing to do that. The king had this profound fear and worry and anxiety about what was going on, and nobody could speak to it. And it just reminds all of us that the world around us, as beautiful as it is in so many ways, is powerless to address the deepest spiritual realities of our lives. There is a hunger and a thirst and a longing in the deepest parts of who we are that this world cannot address. Only God can. And the king was like, Daniel, nothing here is scratching the surface of what's going on in my heart. Only you can do this. Daniel, what is in you is what I need. And church, know this for sure. For sure, for sure, for sure. What's in you is what the world needs. The fear, the worry, the anxieties that the king was experiencing were the very pathways for him to encounter God. And we live in a world that is being buckled by fear, worry, anxieties, and concerns And we can be the Daniels that offer a word of hope and a word of peace and a word of truth to those around us. God has given us his presence. He's given us his personhood. He's given us his peace. He's given us his gifts that we may serve the people around us. What's in you is for the world around you. We continue to read the story, and it says this, 12 months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Do you notice that at the very beginning? 12 months later, one year Nebuchadnezzar had a full year to change course, to acknowledge God. He had a full year to heed the word of the Lord that Daniel gave to him, but he didn't. So one year later, Nebuchadnezzar walked in his palace, content, prosperous, saying, wow, look at me. How great is this? Check out that garden. I am awesome. And it was in the moment that he was saying these things, judgment from heaven came saying, your authority is taken away from you until you acknowledge God. 
And we read, immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar a year before was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. The word of the Lord came to Nebuchadnezzar a year before. And it probably troubled him, but he absolutely disregarded it. But the day came. The day where the word of the Lord was fulfilled came. And church, the word of the Lord will always prove true. The day will always come where God's word is proven true. One person wrote in this moment in King Nebuchadnezzar's life that Superman became sub-man. The superman of the land became sub-man. But God gave Nebuchadnezzar 12 months to rend his heart. The king had seen the fiery furnace. He had seen the dream of the statue. The king knew that the rock was coming, but the king couldn't surrender. Even when Daniel put it out on a platter saying, this is what's going to happen. Surrender. The king was like, I'm not doing that. And it just shows us all how hard surrendering is to the Lord. It is so hard to surrender our hearts to the Lord. And pride is the biggest block in our surrendering. And so to a room full of the most proud people in the room, just let me just say for all of us, the hardest thing we can do is surrendering to the Lord. The scariest thing we can do is surrendering to the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar saw great things, yet he still couldn't bend his knee. Can you bend yours and surrender? King Nebuchadnezzar disregarded the word of the Lord in totality. Imagine going back a year. The king has this dream. Daniel says, this is what it means. I wonder what King Nebuchadnezzar was like at that night when he goes to bed. He's like, oh man, when's this happening? Is it tonight, Lord? Like He must have been really, really worried that his kingdom was going to get stripped from him for the first little while. How long was it, though, until he thought, you know, maybe not? How long was it until he kind of started to think, you know what, maybe Daniel was wrong. Maybe he, maybe he misheard. Maybe he misinterpreted that dream. Because he went from being terrified to a year later saying, look at me, I'm awesome. At some point in that journey, he stopped worrying and he stopped being concerned. The paranoia left and he probably thought he got away with it. And I wonder if some of us here are like that too. Maybe at some point in your life, you have been convicted about something. And you just disregarded it for long enough until it kind of disappeared. Maybe we know better but we've disregarded the word of the Lord. Maybe someone has said something to you and you've just kind of hardened your heart to it. Maybe we're disregarding the word of the Lord by word or deed, by action or inaction. 
You may even think you got away with it. Man, that was 15 years ago. Man, that was five months ago. Hey, that was a couple days ago. No one said anything. I got away with it. But eventually, King Nebuchadnezzar's internal reality became very, very external. His disregarding of the Lord became very public. And for any time or area or choice where we think we may have gotten away with it, God's word will not be mocked. It will always be proven true. The day will always come where the internal becomes external. And may we have the courage to bend our knee, to heed the word of the Lord. Because make no mistake, God will not be mocked. His word will not be mocked. What if your external life was a direct representation of the internal realities going on? That's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He was acting like an animal. Eventually he started to look like one. Can I suggest to us all that if our external life would look different based on what's going on on the inside right now, then we need to do some business with the Lord today. We need to address that. We need to bend our knee. The king was changed and he started to act like an animal, which is a powerful picture for all of us that sin always dehumanizes us. Sin always makes us less human. Always. It robs us of our humanity. Refusing to honor God's glory will always result in us losing ours. Because nothing hidden remains hidden. Is there an area where you need to heed the word of the Lord? After the judgment came, after he was driven away, Nebuchadnezzar says this, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the most high. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. Okay, I want us all to just picture that scene. Picture that moment. The most powerful pagan king on the planet is driven away. He's eating grass. His hair is like feathers. His, his fingernails have become like claws. He's subhuman in so many ways. The glory of yesterday, it's gone. For months or, or, or for years, he, the king, the, glorif the glorified one on earth who built the Babylon empire up from the ground, that king driven away. Picture the scene. He's driven away. He's like an animal in the field eating grass. I picture the hair crazy, the nails long, and he's just this shell of who he used to be broken, hard-hearted for months or for years. He's driven away from his people, acting like an animal. Until one day, this rigid, 
angry, hard-hearted man, he looks up to heaven, Lord. And in that moment, everything changes. I'm human again. Everything changed for him the moment he looked to heaven. And then he praised God. Blessed be your name. Oh God. You, oh God, are Lord. Fighting, stubborn, broken, a shell of his former self. The moment he looks to heaven, his humanity, his dignity is restored. Picture the change in his eyes, in his countenance. Picture the the transformation from an animal on all fours to breathing. And it drives home for every single one of us today that the most human thing we can do is to look to heaven and surrender. To look to him and say, you are Lord. When we look to ourselves or when we live lives driven by our own agendas, we act like animals. When we surrender to God is when we are being most human. I want us to notice that Nebuchadnezzar was like this potentially for years potentially for years, and yet it was the moment he surrendered, the moment he looked to the Lord, his humanity was restored. And I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you've done. I don't know anything about your story, but you need to know that even in an animal state, driven away from people, driven away from home with compromised faculties or capacities, the Lord is still paying attention to you. And the moment you look to him, Forgiveness will flow. Repent to the Lord that times of refreshing may come to your soul. And if you can imagine your soul being more human, if you can imagine yourself being more free, if you can imagine yourself breathing a sigh of relief, your external life looking more like your internal life, then it can. And God wants to free you. Where sin turns us subhuman, repentance brings restoration. Repentance restores our humanity. Have you surrendered to the Lord? The moment King Nebuchadnezzar surrendered, his sanity returned, and eventually his kingdom too. And here's where King Nebuchadnezzar's story becomes all of our story because King Nebuchadnezzar was the king. He reigned. He was in control. He started to look to himself. He looked out for his own accomplishments. He looked away and everything was taken. But the moment he looked back to heaven, everything was returned to him. And for every one of you, you were created in the image of God. Beloved, known, created for right relationship with God, but every single one of us have looked away. Every one of us. And yet, just like King Nebuchadnezzar, the moment we look back to God, forgiveness flows. We can become more human. 
the image of God can be, can be the most known part about who we are as his sons and as his daughters. And when we do that, we can join in on the king's final words and we can say, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Going through what he went through was dramatic and costly. But notice at the end, he's like, everything he does is good. He's right. He's just. But I want us to notice the Lord's commitment to Nebuchadnezzar's healing because it's the same for us. He is committed to you. And he wants you to be healed and whole. We know the Lord can humble the proud. That makes sense. We like that. But why would he ever want to exalt the humbled? Or perhaps more, most personally for us today is if you're sitting there thinking, okay, I know I need to surrender, but how can I know it's going to be okay? Because let me just, like, I know the hardest and scariest step in the world is the one of surrender. It's the hardest thing. And with all of us being the most proud people in the room, the hardest thing we could possibly do, the scariest thing we could possibly do is to actually surrender. So how do we know we can do that and it'd be okay? I want to fast forward from King Nebuchadnezzar to another king. Because there's another king we read about in the Bible that was brought down from the heights to the depths. Nebuchadnezzar, we read, he was out on top of the plateau looking out his land and thinking, wow, look at me, I'm awesome. But there's another king that we read about that was brought to the high place and said, look out, I can give you all of this. And that king was like, no, no, no. When I look out, I don't see things that attribute how great I am. I look out and I see people who need to be loved. And I've come to give myself as a ransom for them. To seek and to save all who were lost. There was one king who looked out, Nebuchadnezzar. He says, look at this ancient wonder of the world I've built. Is this not for my glory? But the other king, he didn't just create one of the ancient wonders of the world. He created the world itself from scratch. But instead of exalting himself, this king chose to humble himself by taking the very nature and form of a servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This king left the comforts and glories of heaven and came to dwell on earth amongst humanity. But he took his humbling even further. King Nebuchadnezzar's nail grew to be like claws. King Jesus took nails into his body for us so that we don't have to. King Jesus humbly came to the world he created to seek and to save you and me, to change our hearts, to transform our lives. And we know we can surrender because we know Jesus is good. And we know we can surrender because King Jesus is the one who invites us to. And we know we can surrender because King Jesus only describes himself one time, his character, his personality. And he says, I am gentle and lowly, humble in heart. Come to me if you're weary and I will give you rest. 
He invites us to surrender, which is the scariest and hardest thing we could ever do. But it's also the most sane thing we could ever do. It's the safest thing we could ever do. And that's why we take communion. Because this is a moment where each of us say, Lord, I look to you. My eyes are on you. Communion is that moment where we together declare that we surrender our lives, our agendas to the Lord. In humility, we declare who he is. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. It's broken for you so that if you're driven away and broken yourself, you can be made whole. And he prayed for us. And he said, you need to take this to remember me and remember what I've done for you. He was broken so we can surrender and be made whole to the king. After supper, Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, whenever you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we proclaim his death and his resurrection that we can glorify him as king. What's in us is for the world. And may we offer the world the very presence and person and peace and power of Christ at work. May we join King Nebuchadnezzar and lift our eyes and bend our knee and surrender to him. Bless you, church.